Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. FTX, the shuttering of Genesis Market, the failure at Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate and Signature Bank, USDC losing its dollar pack in 2023. Now these are some of just, you know, just some of the recent headline events that have rocked the crypto landscape. But what have these events meant for crypto traders and the larger cryptocurrency ecosystem? Is there an urgency to address global regulation rather than jurisdiction-specific rules? And how are issues of market integrity and investor protection being addressed? Well, today on Money and Me, we check in with Cheng Yi the head of policy APAC at Chainalysis. Good morning, Chengi. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you for having me today. All right, Chengi, let's start off with the closure of SVB and Silvergate. Now, let's start off by discussing, you know, does the closure of SVB and Silvergate significantly impact crypto businesses' ability to work with banks and enable the off-ramping of the US dollar? Well, that's a great question. So if you look at the digital asset sector in the US before March, you'll see that banking relationships were disproportionately concentrated in a few banks. Mm. Uh, and as a result, the failure of Silvergate, SVB and Signature was undoubtedly disruptive, especially Silvergate and Signature, given their uh, important role in enabling 24-7 settlement of crypto fiat trades. But what we've seen since March is other banks gradually filling the gap, right. uh, including regional banks like Cross River in the U.S. Um, and I think really the important thing that we need to watch out for uh, in this reconfiguration is not to replicate that concentration of banking exposure that we saw in the past, which was dangerous, of course, not just for the digital asset players that relied on the banks, but for the banks themselves and for the financial system more broadly. Um, this issue is close to you know, our heart at chain analysis because we've seen it time and again. Um, the concentration typically arises because of the challenges that digital asset players face in obtaining services from mainstream banks. Yeah. Uh, so in this part of the world, actually touching on this issue of, of regulation, you know, it's really heartening that we're seeing efforts from regulators to take a constructive approach to mm. this issue. We saw this in Hong Kong. Um, and we also hear about this uh, in terms of MAS working with banks to establish guidelines for onboarding digital asset players. Right. That's very encouraging. Right, yeah, certainly some encouraging news here and uh, more regulation in this space. Now, thanks for that, Cheng Yi. Now, let's discuss about, you know, where did, hater, like, where did traders head following the FTX failure and what could that mean for the future of centralized crypto businesses? Yeah, so in the immediate aftermath of FTX, what we saw really was a flight to safety. Right. Right, we saw traders swapping into safer assets like stable coins, some off-ramping into fiat. But an interesting thing that we saw is also flows to decentralized exchanges and personal wallets spiking. Mm. And this is quite common in terms of, uh, in times of market turmoil. Uh, you see this um, tendency for people to move towards self-custody. Right. Um, but, you know, these flows, they really normalized relatively quickly after the initial shock. Um, right. And we, again, we saw this through much of the turbulence in 2022, the different failures. Mm. It raised a really good question around, like, what does this mean for centralized exchanges? So I think here it's really important to remember that the FTX failure was a failure of governance, right? yeah. not of digital assets. Centralized mm. exchanges are a really important part of this whole digital asset ecosystem. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they serve as on and off ramps. Uh, they serve as price discovery venues. They dominate overall market trading volumes. Um, but what they will need to do is meet a higher bar going forward. 
uh, whether that's in terms of transparency, whether balance sheets, management of conflicts of interest, safeguarding of customer assets, and that's something that regulators are really looking at and acting on already. Right. Okay, thank you so much for that, Cheng Yi. Now, let's turn our attention over to the USDC. Now, when the USDC depacked, what do you think were some of the assets that benefited from the transfer of trading funds? So, actually, the dynamics were not so dissimilar to what happened after the FTX collapse. That saw the same uh, spike in outflows from centralized to decentralized exchanges. Yep. And that's also likely from traders looking to swap out their USDC when centralized exchanges had halted trading, right? Mm. We also, again, saw that trend towards self-custody, so outflows to personal wallets. But what I think is quite remarkable is how quickly this whole situation reversed once there was assurance that USDC reserves were safe. So we saw those assets flowing straight back from personal wallets back to centralized exchanges. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so it was really a very short, sharp, disruptive uh, event, but very short-lived. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's uh, the the way that the, the market moves here. I suppose it's, it has to do a lot with the headlines as well. So I suppose to a certain extent, it's a little bit of an over-exaggeration. But uh, good to see how things are evolving over time. Now, what do you think these near-term catastrophic events have meant for crypto traders and the larger cryptocurrency ecosystem? You know, all the events of 2022, um, it was a tough year for the industry. Mm. No question. Yeah. But actually, if you look at crypto market, beneath the surface, beneath the, where the prices are now, they've remained pretty resilient overall. Um, and I mean, like, if you look at fundamentals, so things like the number of active wallets, the economic value transferred, um, that's still stable or trending up. Mm-hmm. And this is similar to past cycles. You know, crypto has been through a lot of boom and bust cycles. And what we saw was the industry continuing to build through the bear market. Right. But the biggest challenge now in front of the sector, I think, is to rebuild trust. Um, and that's what we do at Chainalysis, right? We try to build trust in blockchain, but for the ecosystem mm-hmm. at large, there is a lot of work yes. um, that the industry can do in terms of um, holding itself accountable to responsible business practices. Yeah, certainly I agree with that as well. I mean, seeing how, you know, from the likes of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and the fallout of FTX as well, I think it's definitely done a lot to, you know, affect the confidence that investors have in this space. Now, Cheng Yi, is the regulatory landscape for crypto assets evolving here in APAC? Absolutely. Mm. So actually in APAC, um, we have a few jurisdictions that were really early movers in terms of regulating digital assets. And okay. I have in mind, you know, Japan, after Mt. Gox and CoinCheck, they put in place uh, quite a lot of measures that have stood them quite well uh, in, in the turbulence of 2022. Um, but Thailand is another early mover. Um, but nonetheless, I think what the, uh, the, the the failures of the last year have done is created a lot more regulatory momentum across mm. the region. Okay. So we have many regulators that are at various stages of uh, developing regulatory frameworks. And those are really centered uh, not just around AML issues, uh, money laundering issues as they were in the past, but right. now really thinking about things like, you know, prudential soundness, how resilient is your business model, things like market conduct and market integrity, as well as consumer protection. Mm. Interesting. Who do you think uh, you see, you know, leading the way uh, in terms of crypto regulation here in APEC then? Um, Well, I think there's action in all uh, jurisdictions and it's really not a race. Right. Um, But of course, um, uh, beyond Japan, as I mentioned, which was an early mover, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing the new licensing regime for virtual asset exchanges taking effect in Hong Kong. That's tomorrow. Right. Um, in Singapore, of course, 
you know, we already have the, the digital payment token service provider regime under the Payment Services Act. Uh, last year, MAS put out uh, a bunch of consultation proposals on business conduct. Um, and so we're really awaiting responses to that consultation and we're expecting that uh, to come you know, fairly shortly. Right. Interesting. And thank you so much for that, Cheng Now, I just, I'm just actually quite curious as well. How do you see the region here in APEC, you know, leading cryptocurrency regulations for the rest of the world as well? What do you think the rest of the world can learn from what APEC is doing in terms of uh, crypto regulation? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think APEC's a very heterogeneous region. And actually, even when you think about the regulatory frameworks that are emerging in each country, mm. um, there are different motivations and they're targeted at different things. So they're all slightly different. Right. Um, and I wouldn't say that, you know, there isn't regulatory momentum elsewhere in the world. You have, you know, the EU that just passed Mika, uh, which is a massive piece of legislation covering 27 jurisdictions. And then you've got far in, uh, in, in Dubai. But I think um, what we see in a lot of uh, the desire to, you know, try to be facilitated to the industry and capture the innovation and growth benefits. Mm. So we see this in Japan where, you know, they have quite tight rules, but they also have this Web3 strategy that they're looking to drive as an engine of growth. Um, and of course, we see this in Hong Kong where they put in place what's really a very stringent regime, but at the same time, um, they are opening up space for retail investors to come into the sector. So this mm. balance of like risk management and innovation and growth, I think, is what I would hope that other regulators would take away. Right. Fascinating. A lot to learn from uh, the APEC regulators here. Now, are we seeing the rise of divergent crypto markets globally? You know, are the use cases of crypto versus inflation and devaluation of currency evolving differently in different parts of the world? Um, I wouldn't say that we're seeing a divergence. Yeah. I think what we're seeing is that there are different use cases for digital assets that are gaining traction in different parts of the world based on those idiosyncratic fundamentals. Right. Right. So we've seen, we, we have seen um, digital assets used as an inflation hedge. Yep. And obviously those will be in countries where inflation is rife. So um, recent survey data suggests that more than a third of Latin American consumers already use stable points to make everyday purchases, which is quite remarkable. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But then closer to home, there's also, you know, the use case of crypto for remittances, Mm. which is something that, you know, we actually analysis highlighted in our geography of crypto report last year. So if you look around the region, just at ASEAN, Vietnam and Philippines, they're major remittance markets. And they're also markets with the highest um, level of grassroots adoption of digital assets globally. It's quite, it's quite, um, remarkable when you yeah. look at look at the data. Um, and here there's evidence um, that digital assets are serving as a more convenient remittance channel right. for underbanked you know, individuals. Um, they're also a cheaper alternative to money transfer services. So these real world use cases, you know, the way that they develop are going to be different in different jurisdictions, but I think we're going to continue to see them to grow and more use cases develop. Yeah, I'm quite excited to see how, you know, people around the world globally, they start thinking about how they're going to use cryptocurrency in this case. And uh, let's just wait and see how this story develops. Now, Cheng Yi, how do you think the banking turmoil has impacted the flows of money into digital assets? And has it actually buttressed the case for digital assets? <laughs> yeah, this question comes up sometimes. <laughs> um, so I think what we've seen really over the past year is that the macro environment, in particular tightening financial conditions, are really challenging both 
the digital asset sector and the banking sector, right? Um, albeit in different ways. And, you know, we see digital assets sort of being uh, very correlated with tech stocks. They're a bit more of a risk asset yeah. from a market perspective. Um, and really, when we think about banking versus digital assets, ultimately, neither is a substitute for the other. Mm. Um, so, but, but what I think we do need to take away is that the two... Um, are intertwined and developments in one, good or bad, can spill over into the other. Ah, okay. So the most, yeah, I mean, so the most important thing that the sector can focus on uh, right now is just to continue to build, you know, resilient business models, innovative business models, rebuild that trust right. um, in order to be able to serve as a good store of value. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, back in when, you know, th- during the banking crisis itself, I mean, there were articles written about how, you know, there is uh, s- small evidence that the recent banking collapse, you know, has generated a widespread support for Bitcoin as a financial alternative. But I suppose, you know, um, it's like what you've mentioned, both are sort of relevant to each other. So they, 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 re- they are quite reliant on each uh, for support. Now, let's talk about, you know, how traditional institutions are exploring the potential uses of digital assets then. Uh, That is a great question. I think broadly there are two ways. There's a short-term play and a long-term play. Okay. So the short-term play is crypto as an asset class. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing financial institutions offering services like digital asset custody, where they're offering the customers, you know, the ability to trade in crypto or financial products of crypto exposure. Uh, So we saw like DBS, you know, has obviously launched its crypto exchange and is expanding that, you know, the reach of that exchange. Um, BNY Mellon is looking at custodial services in Asia as well. So crypto as a business line is really the, the, the first um, part of call in the short term play. Mm-hmm. But the longer term play is really about, I think, exploring how digital assets or the underlying technology can make traditional financial services more efficient. Right. Okay. So some banks mm-hmm. are, are launching their own stable coins. You know, two out of four major banks in Australia are doing this. Um, we also see a lot um, of action around asset tokenization as use case, you know, in terms of reducing settlement times and locking liquidity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of industry action on that front, including, you know, MAS's Project Guardian, which is a bit of a champion in this space. Right. Okay. Very interesting. Now, you know, Changi, before I let you go, I'm actually quite curious about this space, the Web3 space. And uh, how do you think this would be developing over the next few years as well? Well, I think it's going to grow for sure. And I think we're already seeing that um, in in many markets around the region. There's a lot of interest, including by non-financial companies, uh, to explore, um, you know, what they can do in Web3, what they can do with blockchain. There's a lot of action, uh, you know, even after the froth of 2021 around NFTs and and what their uh, real world use cases are. So um, I think this space is, is a very exciting one. It's one that we're closely watching as a company. Right. Um, and uh, that, that we're very excited about. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and giving us such a comprehensive breakdown, Chengi. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. We've been speaking to Chengi Ong, the head of policy APAC at Chanalysis, talking about the use cases of crypto versus inflation and devaluation of currency, and as well as the future of crypto, the larger cryptocurrency ecosystem after the near-term catastrophic events. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.